Once again, during this pandemic, uh, we've seen who our educators are. They're selfless, they're dedicated, they're cut from a true cloth of character and commitment. They represent one of the most critical professions in America, and that's not hyperbole, that's a fact. Well, welcome to Insider Insights, 100 Days to Biden, a podcast from Buchanan, Ingersoll and Rooney. I'm your host today, Jim Weltrout, a senior principal in our firm's federal government relations practice in Washington, D.C. If this is your first time tuning into our podcast, be sure to check out our previous episodes where we've covered President Biden's expected policy approaches to the life sciences, energy, healthcare, transportation, labor and employment, and defense sectors. If you're a returning listener, then welcome back. On today's episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Chuck Poling. Like me, Chuck is also a senior principal in Buchanan's government relations practice. We're going to spend some time talking about what changes and legislative policies those in the education space can expect to see from the new administration. Chuck, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Jim. Look forward to the conversation. Starting off, there are three pieces of legislation that came out recently to be approved by Congress that affects stakeholders in the education space. I want to go through all three of those with you over the course of the podcast. First, the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. It passed in mid-March and included a number of provisions for businesses and organizations, including higher education. Can you tell us a little bit about what those are and what education institutions need to do to get some of this support? Sure, Jim, I'd be glad to. As you mentioned, the American Rescue Plan was approved uh, recently by the Congress. It represents the single largest investment ever in public higher education, about $39.5 billion nationally. The $39 billion will be allocated by the Secretary of Education, primarily based on several formula calculations, uh, primarily derived from the Pell Grant allotments to higher education institutions. 91% approximately will go directly to institutions. It's similar to the CARES Act funding, the first stimulus package that was passed last year. 50% of the aid must be distributed to students as emergency financial aid. It's very specific in that public and private and nonprofit institutions receiving American Rescue Plan funds must spend at least as much on emergency financial aid to students as they spent last year with the CARES Act funding, okay? This is money students can use to pay for food, for housing, childcare, transportation, course materials, technology, things like that. So it's pretty significant. The remaining funds can be used for, among other things, technology at the institutions, new safety improvements, faculty, staff trainings, payroll, things like that. So it's pretty extensive uh, opportunity and that $39 billion is going to be available very soon through the Department of Education. Although the money hasn't been allocated yet, I think we have some estimates about what institutions are going to be receiving. So that's significant. One other thing I wanted to mention, or a couple other things, 7.5% of that funding is going to be available for historically Black colleges and universities and minority-serving institutions. I think that's significant. Uh, I think 1% is planned to be provided to proprietary institutions of higher education. And then there's a half a percent that the secretary has some discretion for grants to institutions with the greatest unmet needs. So it's a great opportunity for higher education to access 
some significant federal dollars. Again, we're talking about a $1.9 trillion pot of money. And of that money, 39.5 will be going to the institutions of higher education. You're right when you characterize that as an incredible investment, and it really is. But I guess there's more to come. It leads to my next question. We talked in previous episodes about the fact that Congress is bringing back the traditional earmark, something that they haven't had since 2010. So it's been a long time, and members of Congress are all getting used to this new environment. But with the federal budget process underway and the introduction of earmarks, what does this mean for the education sector? I know some deadlines for applying or making appropriations requests to members of Congress. Some of those deadlines have passed, others have not. How would you advise institutions of higher learning if they were going after earmarks in in this particular year? That's exactly a great point. I do think that after a hiatus, as you mentioned, of over a decade, earmarks are back, although they're called something different now called community projects. Right now, starting with the United States House of Representatives, members can now submit requests for funding of projects within their districts, within certain limitations, of course, including the number of projects for which funding is being requested and the cap on the total amount for each member. It's very important that institutions of higher education reach out to the members of the House to begin with. The Senate will be considering this type of legislation for 2022 after the House passes their legislation. But to start with the House, the deadline for submission for members to the actual Appropriations Committee is April 28th. But as you indicated, some of the individual members of Congress have established guidelines on deadlines sooner than that. And they wanna be able to review the documents and speak with the supplicants, so to speak, and the higher education institutions in order that they can prioritize their projects. So I think it's really critical that educational institutions reach out to the members of Congress. The, uh, the money for higher education community projects will be designated under the post-secondary education fund for the improvement of post-secondary education. The uh, funding request should focus on improving access to or the quality of post-secondary education. This community project funding cannot be used for construction or renovation of academic buildings, except for the case of minor remodeling required as part of technology upgrades. In addition, the recipients, higher education institutions who receive community project funding may not subgrant to other organizations or agencies. Some examples of the types of projects that can be funded include projects to hire and train faculty, establish and improve degree programs, improve teacher preparation program, develop and improve curricula, acquire science laboratory equipment, for example, and provide student support. Uh, The grantees are usually going to be colleges and universities, but may include other public and private nonprofit organizations. It should be also noted there's going to be significant funding through the budget process, but also under the American Rescue Plan, $350 billion is going to be available for state and municipal governments to assist them in addressing challenges related to the pandemic. So higher education institutions should be going after earmarks in the 2022 budget, but also be sure reaching out to their local governors, state legislators, municipal officials, governors, and talking to them about if there's some funding available through that funding also. Great points with higher education. It, it is a patchwork, if you will, of funding opportunities. And, and this, this year in particular, there are you know, more than two or three bites of the apple with the, uh, the COVID relief bills. It's a good, good time to be in the, uh, the business of educating uh, folks. There's a lot of money out there. There's going to be a lot of oversight. 
but there's, there's a lot of money out there to, to do good things. And so thank you for that insight. Lastly, on the immediate legislation front, there has been plenty of talk about President Biden's infrastructure bill and how it looks like it may encompass much more than traditional infrastructure. What might be available to colleges and universities there? And again, how can they access those funds? Jim, and again, on point out, we have a piece of legislation that we discussed previously. The American Rescue Plan has been enacted. We have the 2022 budget process, which is going on currently. And then we have the federal infrastructure package, the American's Job Plan of $2.2 trillion that the president has proposed. The particulars of the proposed legislation are really still being worked out but the package will be broke up into distinct pieces. One bill would focus on infrastructure improvements and green energy. Another bill will focus on improvements for Americans, including universal pre-K, paid sick leave and family leave, and it's interestingly, free community colleges. The categories, just general categories, so you know, $2.2 trillion, including the traditional transportation infrastructure improvements. That's about $600 billion for highways, bridges, transit, airports, ports, et cetera. Part of the package is going to include about $600 billion for research and development and workforce development, manufacturing. Another part uh, of the package, $400 billion for home and community-based care for elderly and disabled. But the higher education institutions portion of the package, a particular interest, uh, it's called infrastructure at home. And it includes $100 billion for high street broadband expansion, but it also includes $137 billion for public schools and early learning centers and community colleges, as I, was, uh, as I mentioned previously. So there's a, a lot there. It's only at the beginning of the process, but I think it's important that education uh, institutions and the staffs and the leaders of the institutions uh, start uh, reaching out to their uh, members of Congress for the infrastructure package and talk about their needs. There's no real specifics yet to the free community college proposal. It's totally, it's unclear whether it'll be universal or it will be means tested based on income. It uh, does not appear to go quite as far as some of the proposals put forth by some of the more progressive Democrats, uh, especially those in the Senate, Senator Elizabeth Warren in Massachusetts and Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, who have advocated for debt-free college for all public undergraduate institutions. But it's just uh, the latest in a series of early steps the administration the Biden administration has been perceiving um, and pursuing uh, with uh, respect to student loans and borrowers. They canceled 72,000 student loans. Uh, they're expected to cost about a billion dollars. They also extended uh, the uh, payment payback period for student loans to September uh, of 2021. So there are a number of different uh, areas that uh, the administration is pursuing with respect to student loans. One final thing I do want to mention with respect to community colleges, the infrastructure plan, the American Rescue Plan, includes investing in community college infrastructure and technology to help protect the health and safety of students and faculty. Uh, the president is calling on Congress to invest $12 billion on, uh, on these infrastructure needs. These infrastructure needs will be directed specifically, as I said, for existing physical and technological infrastructure needs at community colleges and identifying strategies to address access to community college and so-called education deserts, those areas across the country where there aren't community colleges or the residents have not had access to education, higher education. So it's uh, fairly significant. I know that's a lot of data, 
but uh, it's uh, it's a really uh, uh, innovative program, uh, and it's going to we're anxious to see when and uh, how the Congress is going to take up that proposal. Yeah, Chuck, you're right. It is a lot of data, but it it shows that of all the things that the Biden administration has on its plate, education, both K through 12 and higher education is, is obviously a focus and obviously a big focus with the COVID relief bills, with the infrastructure package and, and with what the Biden administration has submitted so far in, in what some people are calling his skinny budget. So it's the budget before the big budget. You know, he's he's talking about uh, investing billions and billions. And you would almost think that he has a family member in the uh, the education business. Uh, You'd be shocked. It would not be shocking. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I, I, I have to wonder, uh, uh, you know, which Biden in the White House wrote this part of the agenda. <clears throat> lots of money for community colleges, lots of money, as you put it, for access, getting people in seats in college, whether it's through distance learning, through, uh, through, through in-person learning, a lot of investment. As we know from you know, representing so many colleges and universities across the country, certainly in, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and Florida and, and in, in states in between, the colleges, certainly during the COVID pandemic, had to put a lot of money out front. There were requirements. These colleges and universities stepped up, brought their students you know, into a, a virtual learning environment, overnight. And that cost a lot of money. And they all stepped up. And, uh, you know, and it shows that the that the Biden administration sees the need to invest more money. And, and like I said before, that this is a great time to be in that environment, because the administration is focused and they're, they're they, they really seem to be uh, focused like a laser on this to go back to to COVID. Uh, you know, it, it almost, you know, wouldn't be a, a, a conversation about schools and about education without talking about COVID and its impact on education. Some have mulled over the potential of liability protection for uh, education institutions. How do you see the president and his Department of Education addressing the future of schools in the COVID and post-COVID environment? It's going to be a challenge. I know liability protection is a topic that has come up at the state level and at the federal level. Right now, current federal law provides liability protection to businesses, but limited to COVID-19 related injuries resulting from healthcare or manufacturers of personal protective equipment. Much of the delay uh, the, with respect to provide, providing liability, limited liability protection, it's because the ongoing debate in Congress, to be honest with you. On one hand, Republicans have been arguing for blanket liability protections for businesses and higher education institutions that reopen. For example, former majority leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, uh, indicated that the Republicans would not support a new coronavirus relief bill unless it included liability protections for entities from lawsuits related to COVID-19 exposure. And McConnell uh, outlined his intentions, I believe, back in last June when he said that he was looking for a five-year liability shield for businesses, healthcare providers, universities, and schools that would be retroactive December 2019. However, the Democrats have opposed that. Uh, and uh, some Democratic senators, I think Senator Chris Coons from Delaware and Senator Doug Jones from Alabama, expressed support for uh, that type of federal legislation, but the House Democrats said they wouldn't do it, uh, and uh, they would not to agree to proposals limiting to a worker's right to sue. 
So that's uh, it's been hung up in that in that case. And uh, and what's happened is this lack of federal action is required ended up with uh, educational institutions going to state government and trying to get state legislators to legislatures to approve limited liability legislation. It happens in a number of states in some Democratic states and with, with Democratic governors and the Democratic governors have vetoed that legislation. So it, it's and then the opposition has come from a variety of groups, but primarily groups like the trial lawyers who are very powerful from a political standpoint. And what's, what has occurred is that uh, you have go from state to state, you have different requirements related to li- limited liability, some limited liabilities in place, some not at all. So it is a really a hodgepodge. And at this point, I don't see with other issues like the things we discussed previously, the Biden administration has not indicated whether that this is a top priority. Again, President Biden is close to some of those organizations who opposed it. So I think it's unlikely to see any congressional action on limited liability in the near future. Well, thanks for that, because I, I know it's a it's a big concern for a lot of our clients who have been hoping that Congress would take action. In this critical moment of our nation's history, it's essential that there is an educator serving as Secretary of Education. I want to make that clear again. An educator, someone who's taught in the classroom, who comes out of the classroom. Today, I'm pleased to announce that such a nominee we have, Dr. Miguel Cardona. Like uh, other cabinet nominees and appointees, he's brilliant, he's qualified, and he's tested. He's going to join the Biden-Harris cabinet, uh, and it's going to be a historic cabinet. Finally, Chuck, under the previous administration, former Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos made a lot of waves when talking about her fondness for charter schools. I imagine this current administration feels a bit differently. Can can you talk generally about the biggest differences in approach between DeVos and current Secretary Cardona? Sure, I'd be glad to. Uh, During the campaign, uh, uh, now President Biden, really criticized charter schools. He talked about banning certain types of charters. For those remaining, he wants to increase regulations and give school boards greater power to block charter schools. It should also be noted that beyond President Biden's opposition charters, that many much in a charter activity has already been taking place at the state level, again, in state capitals and local school districts. Some states have begun erecting barriers to the establishment of charter schools or lacking laws that hinder their opposition, for example. Um, some states have used the COVID-19 pandemic as a reason to defund charter schools. And then finally, some teacher unions, some of which are very close to President Biden, by the way, have used uh, strikes to push states and local school boards to adopt anti-charter positions. Um, Education Secretary Cardoa uh, was the Connecticut Commissioner of Education, and his role when he was in Connecticut included being a charter school authorizer. In many states, I think up, up to 20 states, that the uh, state education agencies actually authorized charters. He closed no charters during his tenure and re-upped the charters of all those who came up for renewal. He's said specifically that charter schools provide choice for parents that are seeking choice, They think so he thinks they're a viable option. Chuck, I can't thank you enough. We, we've covered a lot uh, on today's podcast. Thank you for joining me and uh, sharing a bit of your expertise and insights into what's going on in D.C. and uh, and around the country in the area of education. To hear all episodes of this podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen in. For Insider Insights, 100 Days of Biden, I'm Jim Wiltrout with my colleague Chuck Coling from Buchanan, Ingersoll, and Rooney. Thanks for listening.